In Hinduism, there is, uh, Glenn, to answer your question, a, a concept of, of sin. But sin, strictly speaking, manifested in the physical world is an illusion. And therefore, there are, within Hinduism, as best as I know, there's no moral demands given by any deity. So you've got to hear that clearly. There's no moral demands given to humanity by a god, any of the 330 uh, million gods. So when we talk about salvation in Hinduism, it's not about really about moral deficits. It's more about self-realization. One needs to realize their godness, not so much in like an arrogant, prideful way, but more on a philosophical level. You need to realize that you are God, that God is all, and that is how you transition out of your the gradient of reincarnated forms that one could be on back into ultimate reality. In fact, uh, from a, now from a practical perspective, it's interesting because you can actually get in trouble for doing certain things within Hinduism that you and I would consider morally righteous acts. So in classical Hinduism, let's say you're a Brahmin, which is the highest caste. And you go out of your way to help an untouchable, which is outside of the caste system. You actually are committing an act which Christians would view as a moral act, but which Hindus would view as a, an act that disadvantages the recipient of that act. So that person has to go through pain and suffering and if you rob them of pain and suffering by helping them out, you're actually pushing them down. So you, you have to allow them to go through the abuse, the humiliation, the, uh, the short lifespan, the disease, the problems that they have in a lower caste. Or if you just sort of look at it from compassion, I say, I want to help them out. Well, they're going to come back the next life. They may be a, another rung down, thanks to you. So in a sense there is a, a mechanism within Hinduism that discourages m morality expressed to other life forms or people in other castes. Which is sad. I mean, that should sadden us. You wonder why there's so many uh, people in destitution in India. It's because the system says don't help them. Like social welfare and stuff like that is not helpful. Social justice is, you're actually disadvantaging the other people. If there's no right or wrongs, do they have, they must have some kind of a system to deal with murderers and stuff like that? Yeah, there would be obviously s civic or civil laws and whatnot to sort of maintain a measure of order. Yeah, so they wouldn't, they wouldn't eat beef because of the sacred nature of the cow. That's a sacred animal. Well, it would be considered, um, yeah, I guess it would, I don't know if they would use the word immoral. It's inappropriate. It's not acceptable. But it's not so much thought of in terms of, like, moral. It's, there's rights and there's wrongs, but they're not so much moral rights and wrongs. Where are our moral rights and wrongs grounded in? They're grounded and founded in the character of God. But if, if in your concept of God there is no attributes per se, 
then there's no place to ground morality. So morality then becomes more like codes that you live by in order to stay within the system. So it's, it's more like a code rather than thought of as a moral right or wrong. Now, if, I mean, if you, don't, if you don't eat cows for umpteen hundred generations, obviously you create a system where people are morally repulsed by the concept of eating beef. But theologically, that's not really the background to not eating beef. It's not a moral issue. It's more of a code of sorts. Because there is no, there is no real, there's no concept of morality because there's no God of morality. Joy? Um, I can just speak to that based upon my personal encounters. So, uh, Sujin and Matalesa are friends. I think they would appreciate a lot about Western culture and feel quite comfortable abiding by Western laws and cultural <laughs> customs because it works and it's part, they would consider this country to be a, a good place to live. So, um, I think they would probably adopt without thinking a lot about it. Our forms of morality in a sense, but they wouldn't be particularly dogmatic about it. They might be held more on the level of, ah, these make sense, these work, rather than on the level of conscience. I, I think, that's how kind of, I, I think that's probably how they think, but I don't know for sure. When I was down in Virginia, we stayed at a hotel once when I was studying down there, and there was a young, very young Indian couple. They had just, just been married, and they were running it. And she was from the highest caste. I asked them, and he was from the one down. And uh, in classical Hinduism, that's not allowed. You can't marry outside your caste. So I, I asked them, and they just said, well, things are loosening up in India. It's not, not as uncommon as it used to be to marry within one caste, because we all kind of go to school together, at least the upper castes. So, I mean, just because of the influence of the Western world and modernization, there's, there's a lot more fluidity in the current generation than sort of in what we might call classical Hinduism. And there's prob people are probably more Hindu in India or Nepal than they are in Canada, just like, in a sense, people are more Islamic in Saudi Arabia than they are in Dearborn. So, Julianne? Yeah, yeah, because Brahmin actually do have lighter skin because they've married within their caste for so long that uh, the original um, inhabitants of the Indus Valley, the caste system actually flowed more out of skin color. So the darker skin colors were lower down on the totem pole, so to speak. So if you look at the different castes, generally speaking, the darker the skin, and obviously there's exceptions because everyone's genes are different, but generally the the further down you go, the darker skin the Nepalese person or Indian would be. So they're, we would say, well, they're Indians, but they've been, in a sense, segregated for so long that they actually start to take on different physical characteristics, including different skin tones. So, yeah. You don't. Yeah, you, you cannot move up a caste. 
yeah, you can die and come back in an, another cast. So if you perform well in one cast, you can come back in another, but you, there's, it's impossible, even by law, it's on their birth certificates. So it's impossible by law to move up a, a cast. Um, like I said, uh, there's some, I guess, some flexibility nowadays in terms of marrying one down. I mean, you don't really know because you don't have a cognitive recognition of what your previous life was like. But you, you believe that wherever you're at is a result of the degree to which you've self-actualized your godness. So you've you got to sort of stay within your... Suffering then is viewed not as a moral impairment, but as something that will push you forward if you allow yourself to suffer. It's convenient in a sense if you think about it. Whoever the, the folks, the governing classes were that came up with this, it's quite a convenient way to keep the underlings in check and to maintain your wealth and sort of maintain your status, right? So that you create systems where you basically say to the caste, oh, no, it's, it's good that you're poor. You should appreciate it. And if you embrace your poorness, maybe the next time around you can be where I'm at. So I, I'm thinking human nature is human nature. There's got to be some of that in there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. You know, just from a missiological perspective, another thing I read that was very interesting is when missionaries have gone into countries, a Hindu country or a country that's predominantly Hindu, and they start to preach the gospel, they, they cannot preach and plant cross-caste churches. You have to plant within one caste because you're not going to have an uh, audience from two, two castes. So let's just say they uh, aim at a particular caste and they start to teach and preach the word of God and help people to live the Christian life. They say that even though people don't move up one caste, because by law and religion they can't, that people actually start to act like one caste up. Because the Christian life, properly understood, does, now this is not prosperity gospel, but does improve in general relationships, the way you handle your finances, the way you resolve conflict, your work ethic, the way you handle suffering, and you start to act like people one cast up. So, I mean, missiologists give it a fancy name. It's called the principle of redemption and lift. That when people are redeemed, they're lifted up at least one economic, social class in terms of the way they start to act and process life. But you can imagine if you go to India, you have to basically focus on church planting within one caste. You can't just hang out your shingle and hope that people from all castes uh, come and knock. So we're actually going to talk a little bit more about castes in a bit, but let me just introduce you to what are called the four stages of Hindu life. Now, again, I'm probably butchering these pronunciations, uh, Brahmacharya Ashrama. This stage begins when a child enters school at an early age and, and continues until he or she uh, has finished all schooling. Now, by the way, this is more geared toward the, the people that are actually in some of the upper caste, because the lower caste wouldn't go to school. In a sense, they're not even con considered true Hindus, because they're almost more like animals. 
there are uh, four casts and one subcast. We call them five, but technically the lowest one is even considered in the cast. So that's on page 28. There's Brahmins, which are considered priests. That's the highest caste. Uh, Kshatriyas, which are the, the warrior or noble class. Vashyas, which are the people that function as merchants and artisans. So it's even tied to your occupation. And then there's the Shudras, which are the slaves. These are the lowest caste. They're not allowed to hear the Vedas use. The Vedas are searched for salvation. And then beneath each of these, there's hundreds of subcastes, depending on where you are. And then the untouchables, we would consider it the fifth, but they're actually considered outside the caste system. They consume polluted water, eat carrion meat, wear disgraceful clothing, um, sorry, watch their children die, and they're not permitted to be educated. And then you'll note there that in 1947, the caste system were, was uh, officially outlawed, but it continues to exist. So if you do searches like... Uh, online, I'd encourage you to do it. I did this a little while ago. You search for untouchables. Some of the pictures you'll see are, are horrendous. Like guys stripped down to the equivalent of underwear and they're lowered into like condoms, syringe, fecal matter infested sewers. Like basically naked. And they have to like bucket it out. Like just the most hideous, inhumane, place to be and that's their job they just shovel it out in order to clean out sewers and stuff like that and uh because they they were raised in that that's a job they consider that to be normal and um just that's how they make their money they're living <laughs> well, you know what? The, the power of social, socialization is huge. I was reading an article today on, uh, from National Geographic on this uh, big festival they have in uh, India, I believe it is. Every ten, it, it takes place every year, but it's kind of like huge every 10th year when the monsoons drop. They come in and like within two months, they set up a city portable city get this last time they did it uh 2011 i think it was 70 million people came to live in this portable city drink out of the ganges river which is absolutely disgusting polluted with chemicals and fecal matter they drink out of it because there's something in the water that they believe uh, purifies them from sin right and or no it doesn't purify them from sin but gives them immortality and uh, the article is really all about the power of socialization because people love to come to this because they're together. There's a sense of commonality and togetherness. And it talks about the power of socialization. I mean, we think about this, when we think of our denominational backgrounds, I know there's a lot of different denominational backgrounds represented here. Uh, at a couple points in my life, I've transitioned out of a certain ethos of church into another. You almost feel guilty for doing it because it's like you've abandoned your family. It's like the power of, so we, we say, well, it's because the beliefs are more pure or less pure. The reality is it's usually like the powerful lure of socialization. You build relationships. And when you step out of that, you feel like you're divorcing someone. 
And that's true in all of society. I mean, when I leave Canada, I've traveled the world, done some mission work and preaching and some vacationing. It's nice to see other parts of the world, but very, within a few weeks, you start to feel like, this isn't my home, this is uncomfortable. Like, this is culture shock, they call it. Because we're so socialized into the way that we think and act. Well, I, I think that if you've been, if you've been it's like if you're, um, it's like if uh, a, a rough analogy would be the abused wife who's had the tar beaten out of her year after year after year, saw her mother have the tar beaten out of her year after year after year. And she doesn't like it, but in some way, shape, or form, she puts up with it because she's been told explicitly or not so explicitly that that's normal, that you deserve it. So I suppose this is obviously a more extreme example, but these people have been told that's the way it is, and they have no... Uh, they have no power to break out of that. There, there's no money. They can't read. They don't know anybody in a position of authority. There's no police officer. There's no court. There's no advocates. Uh, they're probably intellectually stunted because they have not been educated. They don't think well. They don't think propositionally, categorically, rationally. The whole system is, is demonic, in my view. And they're just there. That's just the way it is. You're born on the garbage pile, and you die on the garbage pile. And there's literally no way of getting out of that. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's churches in India and all the castes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there would be churches composed of untouchables. And there's, there actually are hundreds of thousands of missionaries in India that are Indian. And actually, most of them are young men like 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. There's actually, I can't remember the name of it, there's actually a mission group that, uh, you know how you sponsor like children in Ecuador through compassion? There's actually mission groups where you could sponsor a young preacher and he works within his caste and he preaches and plants. Well, most of these people are indigenous. So, uh, I mean, you can go there. I mean, Beth Granger, our associate pastor's wife, was born in India because her dad was a missionary there. Uh, he was working in a hospital, so that's how he got into the country. But um, we have uh, Christian schools in Pakistan and places, Indian places like that. We have missionaries. It's obviously very difficult. It's more difficult than in, in Canada, but it does happen. Julie? Oh. Really? Yeah. Well, um, obviously that wouldn't be a method we would advocate. <laughs> I, I guess it's, uh, it's maybe like, uh, you know, it's maybe kind of like indulgences, you know? Every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Um, yeah. 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 Well, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, Islam does use money. Like I have a, I think I told you guys that they get paid, I think, $400 a month just in Canada to wear the head covering. And a Hindu girl, or a, sorry, a Muslim girl told us that. I'd heard about it. I asked a Muslim friend, he denied it. But then I said, yeah, but you're allowed to lie in your doctrines about things that I would find less than palatable. So a, um, a girl in our church goes to school with 
a, Hind, uh, a Muslim friend, and she says, yeah, we, we get paid $400 a month to wear the hijab. That's why everyone's wearing them now, and they weren't 10 years ago. My neighbors didn't used to wear them, and now they are, and people generally don't get more conservative. So there's certainly a, a lure to doing that. Yeah. No, the, the Islamic uh, community. Yeah. Okay. Gospel for Asia, yeah. Good. That's a good mission. I've seen some of the other stuff they do. Yeah. Okay, so uh, this is where you're acquiring knowledge, building character, learning to shoulder responsibilities. And then the next stage begins at marriage. In this ashram, an individual pays three debts. Service of God, serving sages and saints to the and saints and to ancestors and enjoys good and noble things in life in accordance with the very complicated words there. Okay? Artha, comma, moksha. And then the next stage would be after the responsibilities of the previous stage are complete, when one's children have reached adulthood, one enters this ashrama. This is known as the ecstatic or hermit stage of life. So this is where you see people that are starting to age, becoming holy men. And uh, in this stage, one gradually withdraws from active life and begins devoting more time to scriptures, contemplation, and meditation. This ashram is the final stage of life in which an individual mentally renounces worldly ties, spends all of his or her time in meditation and contemplation, ponders over the mysteries of life. In ancient times, one would part company with one's family and become a medicant, a, a beggar or a friar. So again, this article I was reading in National Geographic, it showed like a long string of very scantily clad men, mostly older, and in this 70 million person uh, an, uh, every 10 year festival, these would be the older guys who are now transitioning into that, that phase of life, where they become like contemplatives, and they focus more on the spiritual. We've raised our kids, we've been married now, we focus more on the spiritual dimension of life. So uh, those are sort of the four stages. Obviously, some people skip them, don't obey them, because Hinduism is broad and, and uh, defined in different ways. But that's kind of the historic four stages of the Hindu life. So how does one then get saved? Well, the concept of getting saved is it's not the same as ours. We talk about spiritual rebirth or conversion or regeneration or being born again spiritual transformation. We're talking on Sundays about metamorphosis. The paths to moksha are different. The, the ultimate goal is not to uh, clean up your act so much as to experience union with Brahma, with God, as God is defined. So there's sort of three paths that one could take. There's dharma or works. So you fulfill different religious obligations. You act rightly according to Hindu teaching. You would uh, live in a caste, so live within your caste, don't try to get out of it. Marry within your caste, follow dietary laws, like the laws about beef. Uh, produce a son to make sacrifices to ancestors and other rituals. These are the kinds of uh, acts that you would want to participate in that would help you to experience moksha, or unity with Brahma. And then there's the uh, path of knowledge, Inaya, self-renunciation. So you've got to renounce your uh, self, not in the sense of like not be selfish, but you have to renounce, renounce 
your, how would I put this? Your understanding that you are like an independent being. So that's different than renouncing selfishness. It's more like you renounce the, renounce the fact that you are you, for lack of a better way of putting it. You meditate on Brahma. And this can only be done by men of higher caste, and it's described in the Upanishads. And then we talked a little bit about yoga in traditional Hinduism. Uh, again, I, I don't know too much about it in the West, but in traditional Hinduism, it involves uh, attempts to control your posture, breath control, concentration. And the original purpose of yoga is to help you realize, uh, one realize that he or she is Brahma. The paths of devotion, bhakti, all castes can do this. It's described in the poems that are mentioned there. One finds passionate devotion to a god of choice. So generally, even though there's 33, sorry, 330 million gods, you kind of pick one as your choice god or your family god. And maybe there would even be a few. And you would worship that god. Most worship Vishnu, that's sort of a common god. And this god, apparently Vishnu, has appeared as Buddha, Krishna, etc. So you notice those other uh, world relig uh, religions, Hare Krishna, Buddha, they would say that this god is the one who has appeared as the Buddha or as Krishna. Or Shiva, which is linked to the god of the Aryans, kind of described in a similar way as the fertility gods of the Canaanites or the ancient Mesopotamians. Okay? So that's salvation. So um, when you're having a conversation to tie this into apologetics with a Hindu and you're talking about, well, do you ever do wrong? You might hear them say, yeah. Well, you automatically assume because you haven't defined terms that they're admitting to the fact that they've sinned. But their concept of sin and your concept of sin is not the same. Your concept of sin is that you've offended a holy being. We call him God. That there's a moral deficit. That's not the Hindu concept of sin. The, the Hindu concept of sin is, essentially, we could just simplify it and say, uh, not fully realizing that you are God, or not living up to the codes and rituals that are supposed to help you realize that you're God. So that's two, di two very different things. So this is where the study of this kind of stuff is helpful, in that we can sometimes assume that the terminology is the same, but the concept behind the terms is actually quite different, you see? So therefore, uh, one of the biggest challenges in, in ministering to Hindus is helping them to understand what we could call the, the doctrine of sin or human depravity, that there actually is something inside of us that is... Uh, bent on self-law, self-autonomy, that's in rebellion against God, that is corrupt, that is morally imperfect, and that needs to be helped, that needs to be uh, uh, reconciled or, or fixed. Uh, people, the lifestyle, the four ends of the Hindu life. First of all, there is an interest on, uh, an emphasis on acting rightly in accordance with Hindu laws, dharma, managing your wealth and your uh, supporting your family, satisfying human desires legitimately, attaining moksha or liberation of cycles or liberation of the cycles of life. So if, you know, if we kind of draw like some loops here, this is 
how they would view their life. So every Hindu that's currently alive would say, I have perhaps infinitely lived a series of lives. And, you know, you sort of have a, a gradient. I mean, you literally, you know, you could have been a, a bug. And then you became a snake, you know, and then you became whatever, some sort of a small animal. And then you became a untouchable. But you could have dropped back hundreds of times because in a certain life form you didn't realize or you didn't function the way that life form was supposed to function. Or just kind of based on fate, you stayed as a particular life form for, I don't know, like a million years or something like that. You just, you just kept being reborn as a dung beetle. And maybe you weren't a very good dung beetle. You couldn't get that dung rolling. So <laughs> you just kept coming back as a dung beetle. But the ultimate goal is to sort of be ejected from the cycles of life. Kind of sounds Lion King-ish, right? And you sort of, you, you, you again, uh, sorry, Brahm men, your essence is reunited with ultimate reality and you cease to exist as an individual. So it's like if I take this bottle of water and I dump a little bit into this cup, this, the water that's in this cup now is outside of this bottle. And let's just say this bottle of water represents ultimate reality. Well, the, the goal of the Christian, if, if this is us, is to be in, in heaven in relationship with God, but we're still like a distinct being. But in... In Hinduism, you're poured back into the, the one and you, you actually cease to exist. And you just become part of ultimate reality again. So that's the goal, to go back into ultimate reality. Yeah. Just ultimate reality, which is, a, which is a challenge within Hinduism because there's no mechanism to make the choice. It's kind of like... Yeah, they don't know. And just kind of being who you, who you are supposed to be, which is nothing, is what takes you back into nothingness, which is ultimate reality. Yeah. How can someone be a Hindu? By birth or by conversion? Both. Yeah, there's, um, there's North Americans that convert to Hinduism en masse, a lot of them. Yeah. So you can be born... It. I don't, I don't know, I just thought about this now, I, I don't know if you become a Hindu what caste you're thrown into. I don't know. I don't know how that works. Maybe it's what friend you know. I'm not sure. Well, in Canada, they kind of downplay the castes. So our friends are Brahmin, which is the highest caste. But when I ask them, they don't really, in some ways, they don't really want to talk about it because that's, they probably catch on to the fact that it's not a palatable view of humanity in the Western world. You're born into it. So it's like you're born Filipino, you're all, you'll always be Filipino. Yes. It's like, yeah. Well, <laughs> you think you are. No. <laughs> so, but really, in Hinduism, you're just still a... Yeah. So you, just stay, you can't get out of it. In other words, what, who you are born, that's who you... You cannot move out of it. You stay there. But I'm not a real Filipino. 
I know, you got some Chinese and stuff in there. <laughs> Mestizo, yeah. Yeah. Well, I got a whole bunch of, I'm a Heinz 57 too, Dovey, so. Yeah. Yeah, well, this is a recent phenomenon, right? When they officially outlawed it, really at the pressure of Christian missionaries and other world groups, in order to get economic status in the world, you sort of get a bury certain things too, right? Like, what country's going to do trade with you if you officially have on your books, yeah, we're okay with untouchables. But at the same time, there's no mechanism to get out of it. But anyway, um, uh, officially, according to the laws of these countries, you can marry anybody you want. Unofficially, that's not going to happen because your parents are going to say no. Or someone's going to say no. Yeah, they did or they would. Mm. And chances are those, both those people were just in the two highest castes. Because the, you know, family, money is passed on generationally. 1947 is only, what, 66 years ago? So you, 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 don't, you can't redistribute wealth in a country of a billion people that quickly. I mean, it, it would take generations for everyone actually to be on the same playing field. So the, the money, the power structures are, are still there and will be for many, many generations to come. So, okay. Uh, actually, it looks like we have come to the end of our time together. So I think we'll, we'll end there and uh, pick up our discussion next week. <laughs>